podcaster. I hardly know her. <laughs> oh, hi. My name is Megan. I'm a busy mom of four young kids, a comedian, an improv trainer, and an award-winning author. This podcast is essentially the vessel I use to verbally process all types of topics and experiences. I love sharing stories, ideas, and considering new alternatives to things I have yet to learn and apply to my own life. All of this in effort to help create happier, healthier human connections through humor. Welcome to the I Hardly Know Her podcast. I had such a great time recording this episode. The guest today is Emily Richmond. She is a licensed mental health counselor, an actor, a director, and a stand-up comic. In addition to her therapy work with adolescents and adults, she regularly directs and performs in theater productions in Eastern Washington and performs stand-up whenever they will pay her. Um, I first met Emily actually back in 2013. She was a participant in the first annual Idaho Laugh Fest that you've heard me talk about so many times. Um, And I was connected to her through a mutual friend that we have, uh, an awesome friend actually. I worked many years in banking with, um, who also has some a connection to the adoption community, a good friend of mine named Becca. Um, So I'm always grateful when people connect me to cool people who are trying to live good lives and make their lives better and by doing so sprinkling things into the world that they can be proud of and that are a positive thing um, for others and that's totally um, the vibe and the trajectory of Emily so I am so appreciative of her taking the time to join me Um, This was a lot of fun and also really, really important and insightful to talk about mental health. Um, It affects all of us, whether we are personally struggling with something at the moment or if someone we know and love or interact with at work, we all know someone, whether it's us or not, um, who is affected by mental health or a mental illness and the more we can talk about it openly, really the better off we all are as a society. So uh, listen in on this episode to learn more about how we can heal ourselves and how to help others through the powerful connection of human humor and comedy. We're talking about mental health today, which is a pretty hot topic in general in society, I feel like lately. Yes. Um, yeah, and I think it's a good thing and it's an overwhelming thing. So I'm really excited to have Emily Richmond here on the episode today. Um, she is a wealth of knowledge on things, not only with the experiment or experiment, well, life's an experiment, <laughs> experience that you have and, uh, and your career trajectory has been um, to find ways to engage people in a healthier way, to battle in a healthy, noble way the challenges around mental health. So welcome to the podcast. First Thank you. What's a good place to start? It is an overwhelming subject matter. And I feel like for our listeners, I want people to feel invited in knowing that this is a broad subject. Maybe someone will hear something that they resonate with that is something they could start unpacking yeah. uh, and have the bravery to take some first steps. Um, but where, where do you feel is a great place to dive into such a hearty topic? 
That's a great question. And I am going to start, uh, I'm going to start first of all with uh, what normal means. Because lots of people use the word normal as like a comparison. They'll be like, well, is this normal? And so the first thing I just want to say is to you, to all of your listeners, um, whatever the thing is that you're thinking about right now that you do or worry about um, or keeps you up at night and you're like, oh my God, is this normal? Yes. Yes, it is. There's probably about a hundred people that if they had access to this podcast, they would be listening and going, oh my God, I do that too. Mm -hmm. Times when I'm in sessions with clients and they express something very painful or fearfully, really anxiously. And I say, yeah, I hear that from a lot of people and their eyes like snap open and they're like, really? Yeah. Like the problem, of course, is that we don't know that because historically, culturally, we are so weird about mental health, about mental illness. Nobody wants to talk about mental illness, you know, because everybody is scared of, I think one being thought of as crazy, quote unquote, and number two, uh, getting thrown in the hospital and like tied up and strapped to a bed. Um, And listen, that's for good reason. Because the medical industries, particularly regarding mental health, does not have a good track record historically in that way. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's not great. That is not the like modern trajectory, though, of mental health. And so I just want people to know, like, whatever the thing is, it's probably normal. But the thing is, it doesn't mean like, oh, I just have to deal with this. What I'm saying is it's normal a therapist is going to understand how to help you. Right. And you don't have to just be like, well, I guess I just can't sleep because I have swimming thoughts about, you know, everything I said all day that made me embarrassed. Like you, you don't actually have to just deal with that. Like there is help for it. Um, and we want to help you. I would say like any industry, there are going to be therapists who are mental health, you know, practitioners, whatever their title is. Um, I'm technically my license in the state of Washington as a counselor, but like counselor therapist, like we sort of use them interchangeably. So Um, most like any, any industry, I defined where I was like any industry, there's going to be a percentage of therapists that are probably not very effective. And -hmm. if you've been to one, like, please don't be afraid to try another one. Right. It's like with a doctor, a second opinion, these kind of things. And also some people might have specialties, Right. Like, so this is why we have to start talking about this more because the number of people that I like know in my personal life who will reach out to me and say, can I get your information? Because I have a family member, friend, colleague who I think you would be a really good fit for that is looking for a therapist. Mm -hmm. It's so important that we talk about it so that we can have those like connections of referring people. Yes, you can go online and try to search one under your insurance and you probably will find someone very competent. But the benefit of talking about this stuff more is that we can get a much better fit, right? If we're looking for help. So, and how do you, what, let's talk numbers of like rough estimates or percentages or whatever data might be available of how many people among us are probably being affected either themselves or people they love and know by some mental illness or mental health struggle, however we want to define it. So I think statistically it's somewhere like two out of five or something, but it's definitely way more than that (laughs) because let me tell you, 
people think of mental illness as mostly what we would call like in a clinical sense, psychotic disorders. So things like schizophrenia, right. Or people having hallucinations or having breaks with reality. And those are mental illnesses, but mental illnesses also include like depression and anxiety, which Mm -hmm. a lot of us have. And I want to pause here for a minute and just give my personal, I'm not speaking for all therapists. I'm speaking for myself, but there's a lot of us that feel this way. Diagnosing people is not great. I don't like it. I really resent the fact that I have to, to be really honest, but we have a country with no socialized healthcare. Mm -hmm. And so it's privatized and insurance companies get to require things before they'll pay for people's healthcare. We're also in a country where it's really going to be expensive for people to pay for it. So I use diagnoses because it means the insurance company will pay for my clients to get care. Um, And in another way, you know, it's somewhat helpful to be like, okay, if this is a set of symptoms that equal depression, then it's easier for me to find interventions that are specifically designed for this type of set of symptoms. Okay. So I'm off my soapbox about diagnoses. Technically speaking in the DSM, which is the manual we use to diagnose people, there's literally a diagnosis called adjustment disorder. And it's basically like something in my life is changing and I'm having a really hard time with it. That's all of us at some point. Sure. Right. And so I have clients that come to me and they don't fit criteria maybe for like major depressive disorder or generalized anxiety because they have, but they have like a couple of them or it's really mild. And so really it's like, oh yeah, they're going through adjustment disorder. There's a change. And I would argue that literally every single person on earth right now, I mean, and especially in the U S is going through some kind of adjustment disorder because of COVID. Yeah. So yeah, statistically it's like somewhere around, I don't know, two to three out of five, but uh, my uh, anecdotal argument is like, all of us. <laughs> I agree. And I, I do think there's probably very varying degrees of severity and varying windows of time where it might have lasting effects or whatever. But even just like, I just am observing different thing, behaviors of people and they probably don't even realize that we are collectively all going through this global trauma scenario. Yep. But as one example that I cannot get my mind off of lately is I happen to live where I live in Boise, Idaho. I happen to live at a very busy intersection, like arguably one of the busiest ones in the whole valley. And it's people talk about it all the time. It makes the news as the butt of jokes all the time to avoid Eagle Road. And I bought this house during COVID in a high pressure situation where my rental space at the at March 2020, suddenly I was no longer going to have a place to live. And so I bought a house during a time where there was no traffic because nobody was really out. And now that things are getting back, right. to the, this heavy intersection is back to, it's busy, only it feels even worse. Like the amount of times I hear people honking and zooming past each other and everyone just feels like there's like a, there's like a sense of tension that I, and maybe it's just, it's possible. It's just me. I tend to feel like I'm a fairly observant person. Nope ownership of my responsibility behind my heavy piece of equipment that I'm driving with children. Mm -hmm. Um, And I I just feel like, wow, there feels like there's been this shift. And if people aren't comfortable talking about things, we might be inadvertently causing damage in a number of ways to ourselves and others. Um, That's one really random example. I just feel like you know, I'm constantly looking for things I can write jokes about. And we're going to shift to that here soon. Mm -hmm. 
how you and I know each other is through the brilliant world of comedy. Yes. And uh, the healthy and unhealthy ways to approach that uh, art form. Um, anyway, I don't yes. know. I'm just, uh, easing back into whatever our new way of living is, mm -hmm. like it's challenging. If not everyone wants to get on board with being like, real with it being sensitive to it instead of like a lot of the anger that you see on mm -hmm. social media or just different interactions with people it's like people are a little calloused and and maybe not yeah. want to admit that we're all experiencing something hard how can we work together and not mm -hmm. be shamed or ooh. anyway so i just looked it up uh and according to nami which is the um uh, I always forget there. I'm a terrible therapist. I always forget uh, the National Alliance on Mental Illness. I always forget what the A is, but anyway, NAMI, N-A-M-I, the National Alliance um, on Mental Illness. They do amazing advocacy work and research and stuff. So according to them, this infographic they created, 45% uh, of adults live with mental illness mm -hmm. or get treatment, I guess, within a year, within a given year. Okay. Um, and 66% of adults um of those adults, I guess, with a serious mental illness, which would be things like, you know, schizophrenia and um, more kind of serious bipolar disorder, really seriously um, impactful disorders versus like those are the 45%, the almost half is also including just people who are having like situational depression and, you know, generalized anxiety or, or social anxiety, you know, or all the various different kinds. So yeah, it's a lot. And I still would argue that this is their official research. And if they were actually able to pull everyone, it'd be all of us. I would say you are not wrong. Like what you described mm. is actually a thing that's happening. I, and I mean, I, there's no way for me to know. And um, I am a big fan of good research so I'm always telling people like this is very anecdotal obviously that I did not research this but either I didn't notice it before although I've been pretty aware even before becoming a, a therapist um of you know how people behave to each other um mm -hmm. uh, but like I noticed a significant increase in um just people's am I allowed to swear on this podcast yes you are really shitty behavior towards each other. Yeah. Um, and, and the thing is, you know, I, I view everything from a lens of what, uh, so like there's this idea in the th therapy world. Um, I'm, I believe it was Carl Rogers who came up with this. Thank you. Graduate school. Um, it's called universal positive regard, which means mm. that I view my clients with universal positive regard, regardless of what they bring to the session. I'm not judging them because I recognize that their behavior is coming from a place of an experience that I don't know about. And to be very frank with you, what I've discovered is probably trauma and a lot of stuff is more, a lot more things are traumatic than we like to think. Yeah. And so what I've noticed over time is that that has extended somewhat to my personal life where I might not be able to have a universal positive regard for every person in my personal life because it's a different dynamic. Uh -huh. But I do find myself with my therapist hat being like, what, what would make you do that? You know, like say that thing or do that thing. And so I think I have a maybe a deeper understanding. And so I think it's a little easier for me to not condone their behavior, but understand it. Yes. And I think a big thing right now is that we're all being traumatized at the same time. Mm -hmm. But based on our um, 
socioeconomic status, our race, our gender, uh, how we were raised, et cetera. We're mm-hmm. experiencing that trauma in different ways. And also depending on how we, what kind of coping skills we already have or yeah. don't have, right. we're expressing our being traumatized in different ways. For sure. Oh, that's so good. I notice um, I've been I, I'm constantly listening to audiobooks or reading up on things just because I'm so fascinated by human behavior and also like reading the body. Have you ever re- read or listened to The Body Keeps the Score? Oh yes, yeah, okay. Yes, There's several in that scope where it's like, oh man. And I just listen to these things. I'm like, we're all screwed because <laughs> we have so many little things that over time have built up this core. Sometimes our brains are not even aware of, um, and it definitely has this, on the one hand, it's alarming to me, and on the other hand, Mm -hmm. with all the stuff that I've learned in comedy, and specifically in improv, one of the things that I love to talk with people about, kind of to piggyback on what you just said about opening up a a willingness to understand more, that idea that people are doing, they're probably functioning really in the best way they know how, even if they're not thinking I'm trying to be my best, right. <laughs> they're, do, they're doing what they know how to do. Yes. And in the yes. And space, what I've loved to take away from improv performance is here, letting yes, be a way to accept and acknowledge that there's something that exists that may not be something you know much about or agree with. And it allows us to go help me understand like sometimes the crazier something seems like someone did and yeah. I'm just, my jaw drops and I'm like, what just happened? How could they say that? Or how does someone do that? My brain goes, I want to understand more. Help yeah. me understand how in the world did you get to that decision, right? I know this is a podcast, so it's an audio format, but I want to show you something that I use with my clients all the time that I think might be relevant and potentially helpful here. Awesome. And I actually am half capacity to do video with my podcast. Okay. Some people are going to hear it and some people are going to see parts of it anyway. Okay, cool. So this is uh, a very um, creatively drawn circle uh, that was drawn by myself, who is definitely a performing artist and not a visual artist. Okay. Um, So this is essentially, it's like a pie chart, right? Well, it's delicious. Yes. Okay. So if we look at like this pink section done with my uh, metallic pink Sharpie, um, that pink section right there, that's like this section of stuff that we know that we know like a hundred percent, right? Like my middle name or like how to tie my shoes, right? Like you would have to work very hard to like convince me something's not true. Okay. Okay. And then this section that's like silver, you know, like a crisscross right here. Yes. This is the, this is the, um, the part of the of like knowledge that things that we know that we don't know okay okay and that's stuff like like for me it would be like um physics i know it exists mm-hmm. i mean i know gravity is involved and i have a friend who's a physicist and when he talks i can ask him a bunch of questions but i don't actually know shit about physics okay like it is in the realm of things that i know exist but i would have to study a lot a lot to like be able to confidently talk about physics right okay and then there's the section that's like the green polka dots Mm -hmm. and that you'll notice is the largest section that is the section of stuff that we don't know that we don't know yet oh that's a big section. Yeah, it's all the stuff. Okay, so here's the thing. There's little arrows. There's little arrows on here 
um, for your listeners that are are going from the section with the green dots that we don't know we don't we don't know that we don't know mm-hmm. into the I know that I don't know and then uh, arrow that goes from I know that I don't know into the I know that I know section and I know that gets very wordy mm-hmm. however mm-hmm. the idea here is that there will there were always things since we are literally born that we have literally no concept of because we have not been introduced to it yet. Yeah. And eventually it could be a thing that we know a hundred percent. When you're an infant, you don't know what shoes are. Why would you? Right. And so that's in the like green dot section, this yeah. huge section of stuff you don't even know exists. Mm-hmm. And at some point when you're a little bit older, your parent or uh, somebody around you picks up a shoe and says, I need to put my shoes on. And your brain is capable at that time of going, oh, that's a shoe. I don't know what it does, but that's called shoe. And and now it's in the section of, I know that I don't know if you were able to ask that infant, which I mean, whatever, to articulate, like, do you know what a shoe is? They'd be like, no, well, it's shaped like that. Uh, My mom and dad have them and they call them shoe. That's all I know. Mm -hmm. And then eventually you learn that they go on your feet and you learn that you have a right and a left foot and you learn how to tie them, et cetera. And Mm -hmm. now, right, you'd be like, what do you mean? Do I know what a shoe is? Obviously. <laughs> um, but at some point in your life, you, you literally couldn't fathom a shoe. You had never right. even had a glimpse of that. They even existed. And mm. that is true of like everything mm, that, means that there's this whole section of stuff that we don't know about ourselves, that we don't know about what our future will hold, that we don't know about people we're going to meet, jobs we're going to have. And that also means that there's a whole section of things that we can't possibly fathom. Like we literally can't fathom they exist about other people and their experiences. Right. Oof. Oh, oh so many yummy things in there. Okay. So I have a question for you. When yeah. did you know that you wanted to go this route? Like did comedy oh. or counseling come first? I can't quite remember because we met... What, when was that? 20? Was, were you there for the first Idaho Laugh Fest? Yes, I was there for the first one. That's what yeah. I thought. Okay. And so I remembered hearing that you were like, you posted about stuff like this, like healthy uh-huh. mind thing, whatever. I just always have been intrigued by uh, the types of things that you studied. So what, how did you take in, like embark on this path? <laughs> so technically comedy came first. Okay. Um, However, not too long after that is when I started therapy and I had a really great therapist. Oh, nice. Um, Shout out to Todd Swanson in Spokane, Washington, because what up, bro? You totally changed my life. Um, So he was a great therapist and helped me a lot. And um, there was a turning point in some session where it became apparent to me that he was just like a regular person. And I know that sounds maybe like a weird thing, but I really always had this idea that like therapists were, you know, I don't know, kind of up on a pedestal, like they went to all the school and they kind of were at the level of doctors for me, you know, and as a, like a younger person. So this was like in my twenties mm-hmm. and I just remember having an experience. I think actually what it was is that I was just sitting in session and I was like really feeling, I went to therapy by the way, cause I had a, a really upsetting breakup at the time and I just needed some help. I was really struggling with it. Yeah. And I just remember, I think, I think it was when I was sitting in his office and I was like, it's just really shitty and it hurts so much. And he just said, yeah, it is really shitty. And I was like, Ugh! 
my therapist just said shitty. <laughs> like, and it was like, oh, he's just a person that happens to have education and experience. And then I wonder if I could do that. And so, I mean, that was like, what, 2020, 2008, maybe? Ooh. Something like, when was the first year of Idaho office? It was in 2013. Okay. So yeah, so this was probably around the time. So I was like, oh, maybe I could do that. And it was like this tiny thought in the back of my head. Fast forward a bunch. So I'm like in therapy, I'm doing comedy and working my regular job. And then um, I ultimately decided, decided uh, to start grad school after my mom died, actually mm-hmm. one year exactly to the day after my mom died, which I think is quite auspicious. But mm-hmm. um, I just was like, she died really young. And I was like, uh, I don't know what's going to happen if my mom can die super young. What the hell? I don't want to just like live my life. I want to do something that's really important to me. Mm. Thinking about it, you know, it's like one of those things you're just like, I think I want to do this. I want to do this. I had applied one place, gotten accepted, didn't end up going, which is a whole other story about abusive relationships. But anyways, Mm -hmm. um, and so then I finally decided to go. And so I like fully, fully decided in 2013, I started graduate school and that's when I like full decided, but, you know, because of the therapy work that I've done, I've been thinking about the idea of comedy around our traumas and like processing it first, like even before I went to grad school, oh, I'm sure. when I was just doing comedy and because, because here's, here's the root of kind of how it happened. I decided at the very beginning when I started doing stand-up, like I did not want to be a comic who just punched down and marginalized, already marginalized groups. So for your listeners who may or may not be able to see me, I live in a fat body. I've been in a fat body my entire life. And I've heard every single joke about fat bodies that there is. And let me tell you, most of them suck Mm. Uh, because all they do is perpetuate stereotypes. They don't actually say anything funny or meaningful about the world that we live in or how we treat people in fat bodies this can be extrapolated to any other marginalized group essentially I just have the lived experience of being in a fat body and so I had decided early early on like I don't want to do that and so I was trying to write material that would be kind of accessible to people and you know about my own life that was like funny situations which I think a lot of comics try to do And what I recognized was that when I would get a little bit edgy in terms of like pointing out fat phobia or misogyny or whatever, Mm -hmm. if I confidently leaned into it, it got a really good response. Mm, Yeah. And I started thinking like, that's interesting. It feels better for me to tell these jokes and the audience seems to respond to them better. So then I'm like, well, why is that? Right. Cause now, now I've been in therapy at this point so long that I'm literally always going, why did I do that? <laughs> What's behind that? Right. My partner and I joke, cause I'll ask him like, Hey, why do you think, you know, that is cause he'll say something interesting and he'll go, I don't know. And I'm like, you don't think about why you do stuff all day, every day. Like my colleagues and I are like, there's people who don't think about why they do stuff that's weird but that's what therapy does to you is you start going why did I do that because once you can like dig down to the bottom of why oftentimes you can heal wounds and find a new way and it's anyways I'm rambling so the point I'm trying to make is I so I started actually after my mom died I started telling some more really personal stuff uh you know I have one of my 
best bits ever is about a conversation that my sister and I, mostly my mom and I, my sister was there, had with my mom before she died about when she died. Um, And I tell it to people all the time. And let me tell you, so far, 100% of the time, people laugh. The only time people have not laughed at it is before I knew how to set it up. Like I did it at open mic once and it was like, there was a couple laughs and some awkward silence. Um, One time I started the joke and uh, this woman in the front row just goes, oh no. And I said, "Um, it's my dead mom. I can talk about my dead mom. It's not your dead mom, shut up. And then everybody laughed. But I realized like people are so weird about lots of things, but one of them is like (laughs) death, right? Like how dare I tell a joke about my own dead mom? Yeah. I'm allowed. Oh, there's so many important things that you just said there, because that is really what people are, they're looking for and they don't even realize it as far as like the authenticity of sharing stories. And when I started to learn comedy, you know, I'd watch people I admired and I I didn't quite know what they, what the good ones were doing and how to pattern it yet. And I knew I didn't want to make people feel bad. I wanted my, my humor to be connecting, not divisive. Um, and, and comedy is a very powerful tool and I don't like when it, it's used for evil and making people butts of jokes and slamming, yeah. you know, there's no product productivity there. Whereas the, the rawness of the things we're experiencing can be important. The key is, or they, you know, they can be important in that connection. The key is though, like we said at the beginning, and I want you to expand upon some of the things with processing before we do it. Yes, a lot of comics love to use the stage as their therapy. Oh, yes. And I'm like, okay, uh, don't punish the audience or, you know, give the audience this responsibility to save you, so so to speak. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't know. I have lots of my own thoughts on that. But talk to me about processing things so that it can be that like powerful tool for good. Yes. (laughs) So I will tell you that, um, again, this is anecdotal. I'm not a comedian, comedy historian or anything like that, but I have the lived experience of being a comedian and also a therapist and also somebody who's done a lot of therapy and specific trauma therapy too, about things that were very difficult and painful. Mm. Here's what I would like to, to start with. I want to tell you a story if that's okay first. Yes. Okay. So, uh, in for anyway, that I don't have to go all, back all that way for a couple of years, I was in a very abusive relationship with a man. And if you can think about a kind of abuse, he basically did that. So I'm not going to go into all the details. And one of the things that's really, mm, lingering and, uh, deeply painful about domestic violence is that there is so much shame attached to it and not just internalized shame right but like shame that is created and and um, encouraged by the abuser and also by the public because we like to say things like why didn't she just leave but they have no actual lived experience of what it means to be in an abusive relationship and so the shame is so deep and so powerful that those of us who have been in relationships like that, we will blame ourselves for most of what happened to us unless a really long time passes and we process sort of naturally, but I'm talking like decades or whatever. 
Mm-hmm. Or we process it with somebody who can help us understand that our behavior was not the problem. It was our abuser's behavior, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. So at one point in that relationship, I was in a fight in my car with uh, the man who abused me. And in this fight, in at one point in the fight, he um, spit in my face. Mm-hmm. And I held a lot of shame about that for years Mm. right like um because that's like so degrading right like that's so disrespectful it's like violently disrespectful Mm -hmm. spitting in someone's face Mm -hmm. and so I had a lot of shame about that and it's something that I did uh talk about amongst other things that I brought up in therapy and I got to a point where I could confidently say like I literally did nothing to deserve the abuse that was heaped upon me Mm-hmm. And the manipulation process that's involved in abusing behavior is something that makes it exceptionally hard to leave. And that's not my fault. It is a process. It is a tactic. It is universally used by abusers. Right. So it took me a long time to process that and be able to get there. Okay. Mm-hmm. Because I have done that work and I can sit here and look at you and tell you like, that wasn't my fault. That man chose to abuse me and manipulate me and try to get me to stay through abuse and gaslighting and whatnot. Because I have done that work, I can now tell you this story, which is the same story, uh, which I've turned into a bit that I do on stage sometimes. Mm -hmm. I was in a relationship with a man for a couple of years who was really shitty and abused me. And he liked to scream at me. And we were in the middle of a fight one time. And he decided he was going to punctuate his latest insult by spitting in my face you know, like a real man. And when he did, his fake tooth flew out of his mouth, bounced off my nose and fell down into the console. And I don't know if any of you have ever been like simultaneously so scared you could piss your pants, but also wanting to laugh so hard that you might shit your pants, but I have. And let me tell you, after that happened, the car went silent. And I mean, like so quiet, you could hear a mouse fart kind of silence. And I wasn't going to be the one to break the silence. And so I just waited. And eventually he just said, where the fuck's my tooth? (laughs) But listen, the story ends great because when I left him, I took the tooth and turns out you can get good money for that on black market. Yes. Okay. And so... I tell that joke and do you know how people react in the very beginning? They are quiet. Mm -hmm. And I think I know why that is. People can tell me why they think it is. I think it's because we all recognize the horror Mm -hmm. and most people don't talk openly about that horror without shame. Most Mm -hmm. people, when they're sharing their abuse stories, right, they are sharing it from a really vulnerable and painful position, which it is vulnerable and painful, but we often are not raising up stories of people saying this thing happened to me. And yes, it is disgusting and uh, horrible. And also it's not my fault. So I'm just bringing this story here to highlight how this is not my fault. Yeah. And it's true. His tooth did fly out of his mouth and it hit me on the nose and it fell down into the console of my car. All of that is true. That entire story is true up until I took his tooth thing. He was at work. He had it in his mouth. I didn't take it when Mm -hmm. I left him. Mm -hmm. Um, I added that, you know, for a punchline. Of course. (laughs) But the reason I tell you that story is to say that like prior to doing that work, 
I never told that story to a single human being. Mm. I never even thought about telling it on stage because I felt so much shame. Mm. And now there are comics who I think are there like, well, I'm not shameful. I'm going to tell this tra- tragic, you know, like a horrible thing that happened to me or whatever, which is their right to do. I, sure. I don't want any comics to ever listen to this and be like, oh, like, what does she know? She's trying to silence us. Like, yeah. it's their right to do it. But here's what I want to tell you. There's so many traumatic things that happen to us in our lifetime that we are told we are not supposed to be upset by, or they are normalized by our family of origin or normalized by society at large, that when we're up there talking about it, like we're trying to cover it with humor. We're trying to say, isn't this funny? When the reality is that like, we probably have a lot of pain from it. And the thing we're going to find funny is our own pain, Mm -hmm. which is not the thing that should be funny. Mm -hmm. That joke is not funny because somebody spit in my face. Right. That joke is funny because he was trying to be such a badass and control me and abuse me. And he looked like a fucking clown. Yes. That's why that story is funny. Yes. And so the reason I say we have to like do our work to unpack what's going on, number one, because it will help us in our life. Mm -hmm. But number two, I think it'll make you way funnier. Totally. And there's great examples of this. Uh, Maria Bamford. Mm, talks constantly about her stays in the hospital about her mental illness and she's absolutely hilarious and she is so relatable right you just go like oh my god you've suffered I have felt suffering because even though our stories are not the same we're gonna find somebody who has a similar experience right like shame is not unique to me right grief is not unique to me when I tell bits about my mom, you know, and about the, cause yes, I miss my mom every single day and I will for the rest of my life, mm-hmm. but it doesn't mean I can't find the humor in how fucked up it is to plan for someone's death. Mm-hmm. There's so much weirdness yeah. around it. Do you know what I mean? Like, so my, my mom, <laughs> she just like, didn't like being around strangers and stuff. She just was like a homebody. She loved her family. She just wanted to like be there and be with people that she cared about, you know, and have people over to her house and cook for them and make them cookies. And you know what I mean? Play a million Carly Simon CDs or whatever. And like, that was what she wanted to do. And so sometimes she and my dad would go to the movies, but they would wait and go like on a Wednesday at 11 so that my mom didn't have to sit next to strangers. Like when the movie theater was too big. Mm-hmm. so when she died she got cremated and she and my dad had gone ahead and like and then gotten two little niches in the mausoleum right for like her ashes to go in mm-hmm. and so we so my mom died like two days before this and we're just like I don't know if anybody's listening to this and they've had a parent die they know it you're just like shell-shocked and you're numb and it's weird and whatever mm-hmm. and we're at the funeral place and the woman's like oh you know would you like to see the niches and we're like okay you know yeah fine sure taking this weird ass tour of where my mom's gonna be forever and she the woman says okay so I'm looking it up here Richmond oh yes so I know it's these two and she like points to these two in the top corner she's like but I don't remember which one was whose and I honestly don't remember at this point if it was me or my sister it could have been either of us but one of us said I was probably the corner one because she wouldn't want to be next to a stranger and we start laughing right because we're like yeah that's a ridiculous thing to say and the woman goes oh you're right I remember her saying and we're like oh my god even that's ridiculous and hilarious it is and oh, yes, it that. was at a time that was really traumatic and 
sad and awful Mm. but like these opportunities are everywhere right but if I hadn't done my work, like, cause my mom was sick for a long time. She died of breast cancer, metastasized breast cancer. So she was sick for a long time. And I was in therapy that whole time processing, like my mom's going to die. I think I'm going to freak out. Mm-hmm. And so if I hadn't been doing all that work, I wouldn't have been like able to see the ridiculous, hilarious moment yeah. of that. Right. Like, because I wouldn't even have had room for it. I would have been consumed. And this is the thing to wrap this up a little bit, trauma, pain, like things that happen to us, they will, they want to get out. They want to be processed and they'll find a way. So whether it is in therapy, doing your work, or it is on a stage, like trying to connect with other people or in a car, flipping off everybody, having road rage or screaming at your partner or drinking a whole bunch to numb your feelings or whatever the thing is, it wants to get out. Mm-hmm. Totally. And if we do it in a way that's going to help us, I think number one, we'll be healthier. And number two, I think we'll be more creative and we'll create better art. I agree. And what a gift. I mean, really what a gift that has been, it sounds like from you putting in that work, it's not easy to have. Oh to my God. No, it sucks. So therapy <laughs> is like, I do actually, I've got some material that I've been scared to do so far that, um, involves my experiences and going to therapy over the years mm-hmm. and different, different things. And I'm like still continuing my studying up on stuff. Cause I'm like, I gotta be the right amount of healed because I'm a crier anyway. And I like, I don't want to mm-hmm. make anyone feel uncomfortable. Um, and I also see this incredible vessel that comedy can be. Oh my God. Yes. So I I actually want to ask you, as we do, uh, kind of bring this on the home stretch, when we spoke earlier this week, before we scheduled this, um, you had expressed how you specifically really have this desire to help comedians embrace and understand the importance of the healing process to become more skilled in their craft. Um, yes. And um, what are some thoughts you have on that to like, what's the struggle with getting comedians in general, or is there just a lack of awareness or, uh, or what, are, what are some of those bigger hurdles or what are your thoughts and where's your heart telling you in that specific industry of uh, helping? with? Yeah, that? I think, um, I mean, number one, a logistical hurdle is that um, if somebody's working as a comic, there is a very high likelihood that they don't have insurance mm, yeah. or they have like state insurance that maybe a lot of therapists don't take. And so like just a logistical hurdle, right? Like getting access right. is a hurdle beyond that. Um, it feels like, well, okay. Number one, there's a very large number of comics who are men, mm. And we have done a very poor job culturally letting men know that they are uh, one allowed to have feelings other than anger and to express them and three uh, be vulnerable without being mocked. Mm, yeah. And so there's this built in culture of like, oh, you can't go to the therapist because then, you know, you're weaker, you know, like whatever, you know. Right. Um, and so, you know, you just got to man up or whatever and you know oh god like mm-hmm. if, you, if you can if you're only listening to this I'm rolling my eyes hard like I probably could <laughs> see the back of my head I I detest that right like I detest that that idea 
Um, I actually really love working with men. I have several male clients that I do a lot of exceptional work with, and it's really great to get to be the person that's like, you're allowed to have feelings. Let's explore that. Right. And then like help them identify that. And I think with comedy specifically, I think maybe it's going to make me unpopular. No one's going to hire me to do comedy again. Anyway, um, I think that uh, there are comics, not every single one of them, but there is this idea in the ethos. I think some people have that like when they're on stage with the microphone, right, that they have to be impenetrable, that they have to be in charge, that they have to be the alpha or something. And while I 100% agree, like when you're on stage, like, it's your time, right? Like you are the performer. I'm not suggesting you give the mic to audience members or something. I mean, unless you have an interactive show, right? But like, you don't have to be tough all the time. And I think that that's like this barrier where comics are like, okay, I have to be like in control and I have to like be perfect and I have to not make any mistakes. And in my experience, again, not a comedy historian, okay, but just whatever. In my experience, all comedy audiences want, unless they're like the rare drunk asshole, what they want is to feel safe and comfortable and to enjoy not worrying about anything in their life for like an hour and a half. And one of the ways you make people feel safe and comfortable is to remind them that you're a human being and they can go like, oh my gosh, she's a human being like me. I'm a human being. I have felt that feeling. And now they're like, okay, I'm, I'm feeling safe. I'm feeling comfortable. I'm going to go on this ride with you, whatever it is. And I learned this fairly early on because I have some bits about living in a fat body and about anti-fat bias and how it is to experience it. And when I would do those jokes up front, everybody would get so tense. It would just be really weird. And I was like, what is going on here? And then as I learned, what I learned is if I start with sort of generic human experience things, they now trust me and they're like, oh, I I know people like her. Like she seems like a familiar person. And then I can go into some of the more deep stuff. And now it's like, I talk about anti-fat bias. I talk about like my dead mom. I talk about domestic Mm -hmm. violence. I talk about being in therapy and like melting in the chair and like weeping and my therapist just sitting cross-legged, just being like, oh, you're doing so great. Just let it out. And I'm like, you have no idea how painful this is, you know? Like the thing is that they will go with me to those places because they trust me. And I know that sounds like a really weird thing, but let me tell you, I want to trust comics. I want to trust them enough to know they're not going to say something that is going to be harmful to a marginalized group that I care about. I especially want to trust that they're not going to be fat phobic and tell me that I'm not important. And then what's more important to them is a cheap joke. Like, I just think that what audiences want is to know you're a human being, to connect with you and to feel safe, to just laugh, right? To laugh at stuff that maybe is kind of dark, but it's like a universal thing. Right. I I totally agree. And I think that is a a valid and accurate perspective for the the vast majority. They don't want to, yeah. I mean, that's what helps people almost feel like the permission that maybe someone is seeking to leave, even if they can't necessarily identify it in that moment, but recognizing that, okay, it's okay that something, you know, whatever their issue might be or their perceived yeah. issue or whatever they're carrying shame on may, might feel a little bit lighter if they see someone boldly and carefully, tactfully <laughs> address things. 
mm-hmm. in that light way. It's not a mockery. Like sometimes people are like, well, you got, oh, you don't have a sense of humor when people are using humor to use an insult. And they're like, I was just joking. It's like, well, you know, okay. There's a whole different, uh, that's an, an entire episode of podcasts on its own. Yes. Of who actual comedians are and not just the goofball, the odd uh, office who's always slamming people or being disrespectful and calling them yeah. jokes. Um, but this is all so inspiring to me. And I was so looking forward to reconnecting with you. I admire the work that you do. Thank you. I am a huge advocate for people taking the brave journey of self-discovery and looking in the mirror to see what can be tackled to light, lighten our own load to mm-hmm. embark on the journey. I'm a huge advocate for therapy and counseling, you know, whichever people want to call it. Um, I think the word therapist hits better in my jokes. Like the couple of <laughs> times I've said stuff, uh, cause well, therapist jokes- also has better sounds like the, it does. the P sound yeah. is better. Counselors is not, it doesn't have the exactly. sounds. Yeah. yeah. And one of my favorite, I actually don't talk, like I said, I don't do a lot about my therapy experiences yet, but I do mention sometimes uh, about how my therapist um, once told me that I'm annoyingly optimistic. And so when, <laughs> when I get to talk about the dark things or whatever, then mm-hmm. to trust it and, and try to try to go there. Um, but for any listeners out there or viewers, just um, I hope there was a, a, at least whatever the little unique takeaway was for you to put a little bit of bravery in your step and honor yourself in whatever mm-hmm. way that means so that you can have the the relief when we focus on ourselves and have grace and allow that journey that is so difficult you know I'm like maybe you know I want to influence people for good but sometimes that big thing is oh it might only be me like that experience or that healing maybe it only benefits me and that's enough like I'm that yeah. one person and then I just I trust and hope that it ripples effect and has ripples effect to my children or people I it does. I can guarantee you that because let me tell you, um, overwhelmingly what I've noticed in doing this work and then also doing it on my own, like as a person in therapy mm-hmm. is that we cannot help, but alter our relationships when we are doing this work, yeah. because we're going to approach things different, um, conversations, boundaries, activities, like any situation, how we parent, how we partner, um, how we, you know, do work, how, how we are with colleagues, whatever we're going to do it different. We just show up different when we've done this work. And I know that's like a, it sounds like a real, like woo woo sort of nebulous, like it'll just be different, but I, I don't know how else to describe it to you, except for that you will show up differently. And whether that's because you respect yourself more, whether Mm -hmm. that's because you lack the shame you had before. And you're like, Hey, I don't feel shameful about this, about what I'm talking about. You're going to show up different, which means People are either going to come alongside you mm-hmm. in a different way, which mm-hmm. is going to change them, mm-hmm. or they're probably going to exit your life. And that can be really painful. Yes. Mm-hmm. But there is no way to actually do the work and have everything in your life stay the same. It is impossible. It will not happen. Yeah. But I think mm-hmm. that's the benefit. It's like, yeah, it's hard. It is hard because sometimes our relationships are going to change or they might end like friendships. I mean, yeah, I, there are relationships in my life that I either have modified or I no longer have since I went on this journey, you know, like of just doing my own work and it is hard. I'm not, I'm never going to tell somebody like, Oh, therapy is so great and easy. No, it's painful because any wound that heals is going to have pain and discomfort. Right. I mean, like 
these are just wounds that happen inside us emotionally. They're not physical wounds, which is why people dismiss them. Yes. But like nobody is breaking their leg and everybody's like, oh, your leg's broken. I don't know why you're whining so much. And then just letting it be broken forever and like hurt all the time. Like, no, you go get it healed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that process is probably going to hurt. Maybe you got to have surgery. Maybe they got to put pins in it, right? They got to cast. It's itchy. Like, yeah, it's going to be uncomfortable, but healing wounds is always going to benefit you. Oh, totally. Oh, Emily, you're such a <laughs> dream come true for my <laughs> uh, desires to have you on the podcast. <laughs> I so appreciate you taking the time to bring um, some light and giggly wonderfulness to <laughs> such an important topic. Um, I really appreciate you uh, joining us today. My pleasure. If you are struggling right now in any way, you are not alone and there is help and there are great resources available. Um, Reach out to someone that you know and love and trust Or maybe if you're like me, you don't really want to always share things when you're in your darkest moment with someone that you are close to. Um, At least for me, it sometimes is a feeling of being a burden or uh, like it's the same old thing coming up or whatever. Uh, So feel free to reach out um, if you want to shoot me a quick message. Um, I'd be happy to offer support and to help you get connected to resources um, that might be able to help you. I have found so much help um, over the years in going through therapy myself, reading some really amazing books, uh, listening to podcasts, and gathering information to help me understand how widely this topic is um, spread throughout our really our whole world. Um, and specifically to look for things that help me to get through the dark moments um, because I know that they don't last even though they super suck when you're in the moment. Um, So just sending you lots of love and if you do need any type of help, I would be more than happy uh, to be on the receiving end to help give some uh, fortification for you in a moment of need and to um, help find resources uh, if you are struggling. Thank you for listening to the I Hardly Know Her podcast. If you'd like to stay connected to me in other ways, you can find me on most social media platforms at Megan or at my website, meganmccaleb.com. And remember, you don't have to be a big deal to do big things.